Hey, it's Robbie Richmond here with Culture Hackers, and this is a very special episode because I've put together your questions, and I'm going to go through and answer them, hoping to make this as relevant as possible to what everybody is working with. I'm surprised there were no questions like, what's the most embarrassing secret you have, or what is the one question you pray to God that we don't ask you? Um, can't use those now that I gave them to you. But anyway, let's just go straight into it. The first one comes from Yasmin. Yasmin asks, let's say the company executives think they have a great culture and everyone outside the company thinks the company has a great culture. But when you talk to the employees, they disagree. What happens when the executives and the employees are not in agreement about the state of the company culture? Well, that sucks. That just really sucks, for one. Um, it really depends on what you can do within this situation. Because first, I think it helps if, if we have standards for what makes for good culture. Because otherwise, it's a very abstract conversation and comes down to certain people liking the experience and certain people not. So what I always start with, with any conversation about culture, when you're going to have one and co-create it, is what is culture? How are we defining it? How do we know when we see it? How might we measure it? There are different types of instruments, of engagement surveys, of happiness surveys. I'm going to be coming out with one as well to help people assess their cultures. And so we need some type of way to say, are we on the same page? Because otherwise it gets really, really abstract and it's hard to solve anything when it's in the abstract. The second is to think, what authority do you have? Because the thing is, people are right when they say it can be like the Titanic, or rather, not, just, not the Titanic, a huge cruise ship that's hard to turn around. It doesn't have to be like the Titanic and go down. Um, but where do you have authority? Where can you make a change? Where can you show a difference with your team that could potentially scale? Because in some ways, this is a conversation about what do I have the power to change and what do I not? And also, what am I willing to risk? Because I've heard of people, whether reading the book or going through the Zappos Insights training and then going and taking some risks, sometimes realizing that it actually wasn't that big a risk and the CEO or the leader wished that they had done it earlier. But it feels like a risk at the time. So what would you do within your domain, within your team, within your power? Or what awkward conversation might you bring up that might even land you in some hot water, but you're going to bring it up because you care? Ideally, you put it in the context of what matters to the company or what matters to the leaders. If they just care about revenue, you find those kind of case examples and articles that relate culture to revenue. But what I find largely is that if there's not some of that willingness, if they're not human somewhat, it's, it's, it's hard to see it really happening. But what I like to do too is say, where can you experiment to show a little bit of difference made? Because no CEO is going to usually do a big, huge turnover all of a sudden, a big, huge change of heart. But they'll let you do something, whether that be taking a survey, whether that be making a change within a team, as long as the scope is limited, as I outline in the book, The Culture Blueprint, the beta blueprint, where you limit the scope, such as the team size, the number of people, how much budget you use, how much time it goes for. Say, can you just give me four weeks or can you just give me eight weeks? And then we're going to test this. We're going to test the revenue on this team 
when we do these culture enhancing moves versus the teams that don't do it and we'll test them against each other. You need to really speak in the language of the leader and the CEO so that they understand it. Remember, culture just exists in language. So can you translate it to language that they'd understand? And if you're really dedicated to this, are you patient? Because that's a key quality too, is sometimes what a, the way a culture hacker thinks is, okay, if I don't get in this door, what if I try this one? Or what if I work with this person? And in a calm, grounded way, not a manic, I have to change everything because the people who I see go at it with a too excited, too manic approach to it are usually trying to solve something within their own lives. Like the time when I worked with that woman who said she wanted to make the culture more exciting. And I said, well, tell me how exciting your personal life is. And she said, Ugh, not very exciting. And so for four weeks, we worked on the excitement in her personal life because if you're going to your culture to get something, to get an experience, it's not going to go well. But if you're bringing something to the culture, and that's a key difference, because I'm sure she seemed excited when she was going to the culture, but it wasn't really genuine and real. When it's real, it feels more grounded and centered, a little bit slower. It's not in this panic, fast-moving way like we've got to do this now. Unless something's on fire, it doesn't really warrant that kind of reaction. So when you think about making any of this kind of change, think about it from a place of respect. Respect for the people who are there, respect for the way things have been done so far, but also respect for what you know is possible. Because if you can match all those up together, then you can have a really awesome culture change. Thanks, Yasmin. Next question is from Jacob. Jacob asks... As someone interested in organizational culture and organizational development, what suggestions can you offer in terms of formal training and preparation? In other words, what options exist for someone who wishes to direct their career path towards work in organizational culture and development? Well, personally, my start in it was at Georgetown University. I took the leadership coaching program, really an awesome program. Um, I really love CTI's work as well, the Coach Training Institute. To me, coaching is at the key, uh, the core of what I do, and it came out of the organizational development school at Georgetown because they realized if you don't shift the leaders, it's really hard to shift the culture. So personally, I'd say coming at it with that angle is really helpful. Um, but remember, there's the education and then there's the opportunity, and those can be very different things. The question I would have is for you is what is your opportunity to do it, even if it's just that you know you're you know, brother-in-laws or friends' business and you can go in and help them with their core values with the process that I have in the Culture Blueprint. Is that your in point? You need an in point not only to do the work, but to test for yourself. I remember when I was in college, I was telling everybody that I'm going to be a computer programmer. I'm a hacker. I'm a computer programmer. I'm going to double major in this film and computer programming. Three days into intro level programming, I, I couldn't see my way out of it. I was, I was so confused on the most basic first lesson that they were saying. And I said, I, I, don't, I don't even want to figure this out. This is not for me. But I had this whole identity around I'm a computer hacker. And so it took a big ego hit to let that go. But I only realized it by actually doing it. Had I just been talking about doing it for a long time without finding a way to even try it, then it's just the story in my head. 
So there's the education, which is in my book, which is in other books, a good to great is an amazing education in this coaching programs like Georgetown and CTI. Um, there's also CTI has a corporate division. Um, I'm blanking on the name of it right now, but they actually have a division that trains specifically for corporate kind of coaching, which I've heard is great. So those are some endpoints. And then where can you test this hypothesis that you have that you'd actually like and enjoy this work? Next guy asks, does culture really trump everything? What about business strategy and financing? Am I being naive? No, not at all. Great call, guy. Because culture, to me, is a when within the business cycle. It, that said, it, it's something to always pay attention to. You're paying attention to by what nature of conversations work. What do we value? What do we not? What kind of people are we bringing in? I think it always needs to be paid attention to. But it's true that if you're just starting out, it's about proving that business model. If you're just starting out, it's about do we have a business model? Do we have a customer? Are we getting to know that customer? Are we building uh, a retention-based business or are we churning through new people because people just drop out? you got to really answer all those first because otherwise you're not going to have something to work on later. So I get that. I, I think that culture is something that you definitely work on once you have something that can grow and scale you really need to but you can do the prep work by just starting to notice notice why do we like this person or that what experiences do i really love at this company and why what customers do i like to work with and why what are the best meetings we've had and why and just start to notice these write notes even just scribbles and evernote for a while because you're going to want to go back to those once it really comes down to it, where you start scaling and you're going to have to start growing and hiring and training people. And it'll make the work way easier when you need to define those core values and define those processes. Next question, what are three things you would change about workplace culture in the U.S. if given the opportunity and why? First is I would change this whole mindset that we can really tell people what to do that is this hierarchical, military-based, archaic form of management system that marches orders, gives our marching orders demands, when the truth is this isn't a life-or-death business like it is with the military. Um, there are a million distractions. People can be on the job and really be on Facebook. They can be checked out emotionally and mentally. So people really have way more choice than we give them credit for. So the question is, are we going to work with that choice? And to work with that, my mentor, Dan Mezik, really brought my awareness to this, is the opt-in, is making everything opt-in. Like we did at Zappos, where even employment, where you're going through training, and it said, you know, this might not be the right place for you. Don't feel you're forced to be here through money. Here's a month's salary to quit if this is not the right place for you because it's going to do way less damage to bring somebody in who doesn't want to be there. Same thing for meetings. Making meetings optional. Telling people, hey, we know you've got a lot of things to do. If this isn't required for your job or you find it interesting and would like to contribute, then you don't have to come to this meeting. Optional job roles when it comes in. Like really playing with this concept of an opt-in culture. The second I would say is visual management. I think there just needs to be more visual, tangible management rather than the abstract. So just seeing on the wall things like Kanban, tracking things visually, tracking metrics visually. The more visual and tangible we can make it, it actually organizes people because we have a scoreboard to work with together. 
And the last is that all the relationships would be co-created, that for every partner, business, et cetera, that the relationship is intentionally, consciously co-created. As in saying, like, like I think on page 88 in my book, The Culture Blueprint, I talk about how to have that first conversation with a new manager, a new employee. And one of the first questions is for the manager to say, hey, what was your best boss you ever had? Who was your best boss and why? And let's learn and let's co-create this relationship. And the culture hack of figuring out what ways you're going to reward that person because people like to be rewarded differently. So co-created relationships. Next question, Andre of Sweet Rush says, we have been highly successful at developing a strong values-based culture in our small and growing business. We are 100-plus people working remotely and want to maintain our values and culture as we grow to the next level. What are some of the tips and techniques for culture and values maintenance and ideally betterment you would encourage us to use? It's a small growing business, strong values, maintain the culture as we go to the next level. Great. So I'll give you some basic stuff because it's an it's a abstract kind of question, but hopefully this will help. One is that conscious culture creation as you scale is all about rituals. What are you doing on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a quarterly basis, yearly basis? It's like how we have culture in the world through weekends and through holidays. We are built in for a weekly culture, daily culture. We have our daily meals, our TV shows. We have the weekends. We have um, uh, yearly celebrations like the holidays, like Thanksgiving. These things that we know are going to happen regardless of what's going on, regardless of the year, is what creates culture. So by you creating rituals like a stand-up 10-minute meeting at the beginning of every day, and what rituals are within that rituals, like we did with Snaps at Zappos where we would have these, these acknowledgments through the beginning of each meeting and say thank you for this and thank you for that, or the quarterly all-hands meetings where we would get together, celebrate, talk about the metrics, yearly vendor parties, these kind of things, what are those rituals you're going to have on an ongoing basis? The next would be to evaluate by your values. Make it a conversation point. If you've got your values nailed down already, when you do your evaluations, your six-month, your year-long ones, have them according to the values where people get to evaluate themselves, zero to ten, how I live this value, and for the manager, for them to evaluate it as well, or maybe their peers if it's a less uh, hierarchical kind of setup. But use those values as a conversation point. And then show how you are making decisions from them because it's one thing to put them on the wall and and say how much we live by them, and even hire and fire by them, but how are you going to say moving forward that we are using this decision point strategically to operate by the values and explain why and how the values played into these decisions? And then people will really get that things are done here with the values. The second question from, from Andre, working with a few Fortune 500 clients, they've seen and admired our culture, especially since we're working remotely and virtually. They're very curious about how we do this successfully, especially as it relates to successful projects. I have my own experience, but I'm looking for some solid research or good stories about the intersection of culture, virtual, and productivity. I'm pulling together my own thoughts and experiences to support the clients who are asking these questions, and I will share them with you if you are interested. Yes, I would love to see that. Um, a few other resources, The Year Without Pants talks about how WordPress did it. Um, I am much more about the in-person culture, but what I can tell you is that what's key is rituals, even if they're virtual, like Zoom meetings, um, 
to do those as a ritual and also to involve people with projects where they have to collaborate because the danger is people start siloing and start working by themselves alone at home. But if they have projects that they're working on that require collaboration and it's ritual-based, then you're going to be in a good spot. Next, John Morris of Vistage says, talk about how a CEO develops a set of core values for his company or how can the CEO get the leadership team invested in the process? How do successful companies work the values into everyday behavior? What are examples of recognizing aligned behavior when they see it in the workplace? Now, once we have the values, how should they be displayed? Awesome set of questions. This is the juice of it. Um, how a CEO develops it, I outline it in the book, and you can see it there. I may even develop a, a core values culture product if you guys are interested. Um, but it's really a process I outlined there in the culture blueprint about how you look to the key people in the company, what are their traits and behaviors, how you trend them down, how you play with the wording, how you test against the, it for the commitment. Would we hire and fire by them? Can we live these? Can we live them on a day-to-day -day basis? And how do successful companies work them into everyday behavior? You work them into conversations, into evaluations, into the decisions that you're making, into, um, you know, even on my team, we play games where we memorize the values or congratulated people for them. Story sharing, um, I think a lot can be done with audiovisual videos and pictures that emphasize it and share the stories and show how that you, you really are living them. What examples of recognizing aligned behavior when they see it in the, the workplace? It's going to be unique for each value. But again, it doesn't really feel real until we take a photo or video sometimes. And then that just actually makes it real. That becomes part of the story. So what's key, though, absolutely hiring by them, firing by them publicly, showing that there are consequences, the leaders living them, getting them in everyday and long-term decisions. So as for getting the leadership team invested in the process, the first step is really making it a co-created conversation because people value that to which they contribute. So think about it this way. If, if I'm going to throw a party, it's one thing if I throw a great party and you come and you have a good time and you have fun for a few hours, then you leave. It's another thing if everybody there was invested in some way. Somebody brought the food. Somebody brought the band. Somebody brought the music. Somebody did the invites. Then we're all in it together. So it needs to start with a conversation that's co-created. Where with that group, you say, what is culture? What do we value about culture? What are the best cultures and why? And does it really make a difference? Even asking that question, does this make a huge difference? Make that something that they contribute to. And then use in it good examples. You can have them read the culture blueprint, or there's the free audio version as well. And then use that as a discussion point. Or good to great. Eventually, everybody gets it. I think culture is, is more and more making its way to the mainstream. Um, especially as you see organizations, like I think the number one example of great culture is the Navy SEALs because they literally live and die by their values. And so their recruiting training process needs to make sure that they are on point with those values and principles and credo because if not, somebody's dying. So if, if there's a better, higher performing organization than the SEALs, I haven't seen it. So if you hear somebody say, oh, no, this is the soft stuff culture. We need to get to the hardcore business and the metrics. And yeah, I get that. You do. But if you don't see how the Navy SEALs culture is what drives those results, how they recruit, how they train, the standards they have, the rituals, the procedures, 
from how they relate to each other, then I don't know what to tell you. I mean, that's the kind of conversation I like to have. And when they co-create that conversation, then they're in on it without them even needing to say I'm in on it because they're engaged. Thank you, Mr. Morris. Great question. Next, we have Steve Dorfman. Hey, Steve. According to Gallup research, there are four levels of customer expectations that, when demonstrated effectively, are powerful enough to turn a prospect into an advocate. Here they are in order of importance. Accuracy, availability, partnership, advice, slash learning. I hear that values are supposed to bubble up, but is there a way to feed the bubbling so that these four things make it into our corporate culture? The accuracy, availability, partnership, um, and advice and learning with the customer. I, I love these. I think this is great. And um, if you don't know him, Steve Dorfman is himself a, a, a great expert on on this topic. He worked with uh, Acura when I really loved Acura. Let's just say that way. I think they've had their mishaps here and there. But when um, when I had drove my Acura, he, he was, was part of that company. And um, I just have a real soft spot for that company because they have all that reliability of Honda with all this luxury of, uh, of a great brand and I love the service there and um, and so Steve was was great for that so look up Steve Dorfman if you're interested in these kind of topics around customer experience um, so he's asking how does that bubble up how do these great elements of customer experience accuracy availability um, all these things make it into the culture this is a great question because you can focus all you want on any kind of topic whether it be innovation customer experience all those things but if it's not part of the culture then it just is something that you have to push constantly um so these are the the three ways that i think it happens one is stories there needs to be stories that backs it up and people need to know these stories and hear them through training or do them through video and any way that you share them there needs to be a cultural knowledge of it. Like the same way at Zappos, there's the story of how Zappos cut 25% of brands because they wouldn't sell the shoes directly to Zappos to ship them out, which created a lesser customer service experience. And so Zappos cut 25% of brands in one day. And that meant less revenue, but in that long run, Zappos became the number one customer service brand and the biggest shoe store in the world. When the values were placed ahead of the goal, that story everybody knows. So what are those stories that you can share where everybody, here's the thing, stories are, as, as Dan Mezik says, values embedded narratives. You don't even need to tell someone the value when there's a great story behind it. The next is rituals. A ritual like Tony Shea at Zappos, he still does 10 hours of customer service during the holidays. 10 hours of him on the phones with customers returning shoes. That says we value it. What are the rituals that you do on a daily, monthly, quarterly, yearly basis that demonstrate that commitment? And the last are consequences. It's one thing to say you value it. It's another if somebody's fired for violating it. And then everybody gets the message. They say, whoa, oof, I get it now. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I don't want that to happen to me. So public executions can be very powerful send a very strong message thanks for that steve darwin asks based on your navy theme because he knows that i talk about the seals how can you change your decision making culture from that of a naval aircraft carrier to that of a more mobile cruiser in addition how do you ensure buy-in from the parties involved um 
to continue with the military theme, there's this book called Team of Teams that came out. I have not read it, but it looks like it addresses this specifically using the continued military analogy. Um, the, the parts that I would add to this are the biggest difference in decision-making culture is how clear the vision is. It's really, really hard to have a great decision-making culture when everybody's across the board as to what the priorities are. And we've got a million things to do. And then you can justify any decision or even worse, you don't make any decision because you're so paralyzed from so much stuff going on. So the way to do that is, is really figure out what is that clear direction and then limiting the amount of new stuff that comes in. There's so much shiny object syndrome that's going on. So much just, ooh, let's try this. Let's try that program. Why don't we do this? Oh, my God. It, it feels so good at the time, but it's like eating a lot of candy. You know, you're going to get sick later. It'll taste good in the moment, but then it'll suck. So clear direction is what you need. And as for the buy-in, I hate that term, first of all. It's just like, what are we buying and selling our or energy here? Is this just a marketplace? Even if it is, like, who wants to be sold? How many times are you like, I need to find myself a great salesman to talk to? No, everybody hates sales. Nobody wants to talk to a salesperson, but that's what happens when we start talking about things like buying and buying and selling our, our institutional capital and resources. So first, eliminate that word buy-in. Just take that word out of your vocabulary. Replace it with alignment. Where are your needs and my needs aligned? Where can we start there and have a co-created conversation about it? Just every time you find yourself using the word buy-in, replace it with alignment and just see what happens because that hacks your brain. It hacks your brain into thinking about it differently. So thank you, Darwin. Great question. Next, we have a question from Antonia. A few of them here. We'll answer them one by one. What are the core skills and talents a person needs in my line of work? And, well, she's saying your line, but I'm saying my line. As opposed to, say, someone who is in business and entrepreneurship. So core skills and talents of a culture person versus a business and entrepreneurship. One, I would say great listening. you got to be a great listener because, I, I don't know, in entrepreneurship, maybe you can really just be telling people what to do and think like a Steve Jobs type. But if you're established in the culture, you got to really, really know how to listen well. The second, I would say, is a knowledge of system dynamics and people dynamics. That you can learn in a variety of ways. Coaching school is a great one for that. Um, the system that I'm developing with XPill will help with that. That's a whole other story for another time. Um, but you can get on that list at xpill.com if you want to start learning about that. Um, so knowing these kind of systems of uh, studying system dynamics itself is, is fascinating and networks because you start to see how everything is connected. So coaching, education, great listening, system dynamics, those I would say are the skills and talents. Two, how can one get started in your line of work? What would be a possible trajectory on that career path? What would it look like? I answered this question earlier from about like start where you can and test your interests. Test, test, test. You might think you want to be me, and then you try being me, and it could suck. You just have no idea until you test. Where can you find your in? Where is an organization, even if it's just a small organization that you can try this out on, whether giving a speech or having a co-created conversation about culture or helping them with their core values process, anything, test it. 
because it might look fun and glamorous watching me on stage. And maybe you'd like that. I don't know. You don't know till you try it out. Next is, do you hire and train people to do what you do and support you in what you're doing? If so, what does that usually look like when people work with you and act in that capacity? I have not yet, but I'd like to. I'd like to train people to do what I do. Um, I'll make a note of that for you. And uh, anybody else want to contact me about that? Robert at cultureblueprint.com. Talk to me. That could be an apprentice program. That could be uh, a train-the-trainer um, I'm not sure. I want to know uh, if, if you're interested in that. Robert at cultureblueprint.com. Do you mentor people? If so, what kind of big picture things do you help them figure out and why? I don't, but I'm open to it. I really I love mentors. Mentors are helping me so much right now. So if you want to be uh, a mentee of mine, let me know as well. Here's what it takes to be one is um, you've got to be a really good listener and a really good question asker. So I don't just sit there and talk. Um, I do if I'm paid to and on stage, but otherwise, if I'm mentoring you, I want to know that you've, you are really clear on what you want and you ask a lot of great questions because questions stimulate answers that I don't even know that I have until I say them. So if you're clear on what you want and you have great questions, then I'll consider you that and we do it on a trial basis. We start with one conversation and then we'll see, do you actually do something with what we created? Because I don't want to just be a therapist or just you know be there for entertainment. If we say some stuff and you do something and you make progress and you try it out, I'm not going to force you to do anything. I'm not going to make you do anything. It's something that you would agree to and say, yes, I want to do that. And then you do it. And if you make some progress, whether it's failing or succeeding or just learning, and you do it, then we do more. If not, then I'm not so interested in, in being your mentor. So if you can do those three things, the listening, asking great questions, being clear on what you want and, and, and willing to take action on what we come up with, then I'm willing to, to give it a shot. And then we see if it works for both of us. Number four, what do you, and then the same thing for that, Colt Robert at cultureblueprint.com. What do you wish you had known when you started out as a culture expert that would have saved you lots of learning through trial and error and time? Awesome, Antonio. You're already asking great questions. The first would be that it's all about the opt-in. The opt-in is so big in the game, so I wouldn't have tried to make people do things. I wouldn't tell people what to do. I'd use things like open space. I would have used open space way earlier, and I would go with the dynamics that are there. Like recently, I was hosting this workshop, and I kept trying to get them into the action stage of what they wanted to do with the culture, but they kept bringing up What's not working? Oh, but this, but this, but that. And rather than trying to fight it, which I was doing, I just said, okay, let me go with this. And I used the obstacle breakthrough exercise, which is in the back of the book, and had them process the negative stuff first. And we held out that trash bag for them to throw up in and just say everything that was going wrong and get it all out. More, 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 more. Then everything that's going right. Then all the compliments for everybody in the room. And then... um then going into the action space. So I only got that by letting my ego step aside rather than trying to force them into action and say, oh, this is going negative, so let's go negative. Let's go more in that direction of it. Because what I found is that, that the more I get into this work, the more it's about holding the space and hosting a conversation and guiding that conversation as opposed to my agenda um, and, and dancing with that. So what I learned, the opt-in and going with the energy that's there, realizing feeling and experience trump everything. I remember... One time I went into this conversation where it was supposed to do a, a high-energy speech on core values, but the group was hungover. 
They were hungover from their party last night, and the last thing they wanted was somebody energetic and in their face, like a motivational speaker who's here to tell you how to not live in a van down by the river. You know, and I was going into that mode and wondering why I was losing people and realizing, oh, culture is in the room. I got to go with what's there. If they're low energy, then I got to meet them at the lower energy and then work with them there and maybe build them up or maybe have them chill or maybe have them take a break because culture trumps everything. It wins. The environment trumps the individual. And so really working with the culture rather than against it. Five, what's next for you in the upcoming years? Where would you like to take your expertise and make a contribution and why? And at your level, expert level, what steps can you take to become even better at your craft in a significant way? What does the next level look like for you? <laughs> wow. Um, I love this. It's a very challenging question. Um, next for me is how do I go beyond the stage? Because I have these great experiences on stage. People love it. And then I have no idea how much they do. Sometimes I'll run into clients and they say what a big impact it made. And I have no idea unless I see them. So I need better systems of follow-up. I want to create experiences for people beyond the stage. I've got some ideas for a core values product, this culture, this meeting hacker in a box idea. I love tangible products. So next for me is making products and experiences that go beyond the stage um, so that I can really scale and, and make more of an impact. And, you know, what I really want for me is, is to be more home-based. I just bought a home in San Diego. I really want to stay there. I'd like to have a, a, a family. Um, and all this travel has not been conducive to that. So if I can be still making a huge impact while not um, traveling as much as I do and being able to scale this energy and these experiences and these efforts, think about also an open space kit to for people to throw open spaces. Um, it's It's one of the easiest things to do, but it does require some training. Um, so this is the direction I'm going. I'm meeting with a group. I'm creating a group of of, of speakers who want to go from um, six figures to seven figures and creating a mastermind. Like I'm realizing how much co-creation is part of it and, and, and scaling and, and growing. And it's uh, it's been challenging for me to get my wrap my arms around this this mindset because it's so easy just to walk into a room, talk on stage, get paid twenty grand for that, and go. I mean, it's like my friend JJ Virgin was saying that it's like this drug I'm addicted to because it's so easy, it comes quickly, but I'm not making a long term impact for companies like I could be if I have something more to sell them, like the culture hacking product that I've been working on, so that anybody can hack the culture. Um. And I'm leaving a lot of money on the table, and I could be doing way more. And I there's, you know, cool things to do with philanthropy and things I want to do with my house, and I could be really expanding into life for that. So, anyway, maybe I'm going off on a personal direction, but thank you for that question, Antonio. It really, it really makes me think and connects me with my desires for this. And you're you're a great mentor candidate. So uh, um, let's talk about that. My dear friend, Jessica Catlin, hey Jess, she asks, why don't people say what they mean? Speak the truth. Instead of hiding behind passive aggression, made up scenarios in their head or guessing games. This can be answered in the context of jobs or boys or both. Smile, winky face. 
I love this. I love this because it does have to do with both, and it's the same answer to a large degree. Again, I love my conversations with Dan Mezik about this because he really dropped in a lot of um, uh, uh, knowledge about this when we had this video conversation about it where he said, all this comes down to one word, Rob. And I'm like, what? And he said, awkwardness. It's like, what? Because we were talking about agile, like Scrum and this kind of computer uh, programming-based organizing system around how you get great code and software out the door. I'm like, how does Agile and Scrum have anything to do with awkwardness? And he's like, because think about this. Saying to your boss, no, is inherently awkward. It's so awkward to say, no, I can't do that, or no, I'm busy, or wait, this seems like a bad idea. That's awkward. You don't want to say that. Your, your job could be on the line. So many times I'm running into people in these culture workshops where that's what it comes down to. We talk about it in circles for a while. And then it just is so clear that it's all just the resistance to an awkward conversation. I'll even ask, are they open to hearing your point of view? And they'll say, yeah. I'm like, so why is it you're not doing it? Because it's uncomfortable. And that's what's happening in the realm of dating too is it's uncomfortable to say, hey, I'm not uh, that interested. And how awkward that conversation could be. Or that it's just awkward to say you feel, you know, differently. Like, hey, I, I kind of like hanging out with you here, but I don't want to really talk on the phone much. That's a weird, awkward conversation. And so people just do things like Esther Perel has this awesome map on it of what people do in dating. Usually it's ghosting. So ghosting is when you just disappear. You're just like, you know, I don't want to deal with that conversation. I'm just Audi 5. The other is icing where you just delay it so people in dating will be like, oh, you've probably heard this if you're dating. Oh, I'm so busy right now. Can we touch base in six weeks or four weeks or what have you when this project dies down? Of course, what usually happens is some other project comes up then. Um, so icing, going to put you on ice, and we're going to deal with this later. Or uh, simmering. Simmering is when you just simmer that fire by still sending out those flirtatious bits of text, and you don't actually see them or go out, but you keep that fire a little stoked and burning. And Esther's got this great map of them. And what's funny to show this to people is you show it to them and they're like, oh my God, I, somebody did that to me and they iced me and they ghosted me. And then you see this moment on their face where they go, oh, I've done that too. And you realize like, you're part of this system. You're part of this awkwardness. You've, you, you are a source of creating the awkwardness as well. And it's it's just this tough game to um to have uncomfortable conversations and i think you know as we get into our 40s like me you just start to say screw it like there's only so much time we have left here and for some reason after 40 that's just started really hitting to me like there is only so much time left and it's going to go faster and faster my dad says it's going faster and faster my 90 year old grandfather says the whole thing went by in a blip of a moment. And he went from being on a farm in Hungary with no toys but a nail and a hammer to seeing the entire Holocaust, World War II, moving to New York, learning a whole new culture and language, having three jobs, moving his family to L.A. and America. Like, more experiences than most movies have. And he, at the end of his life, said it's, it's all gone by like it's a moment. Like it's a blip in time. And as I see that more and more, I think 
I think as we get older, we're just like, who has time for this bullshit? Let's just get straight to it. And I think it's just, I'm seeing the kind of awkwardness. I don't know. I'm, I'm generalizing here, but that it's, it's a younger behavior because it, it doesn't, I don't know. I don't even know where I'm going with that or what I'm saying. I think you get it. I don't want to sweepingly generalize about generations. Um, but you can take responsibility for your part in that and just make sure you're in alignment with your own values. And because oftentimes what I see with people with that is it starts off complaining with another person, but there's oftentimes this hidden thing going on inside that's um, Byron Katie's work is a lot about this with the the work, she calls it, and the turnaround and how it's kind of this projection. And there's oftentimes if we see um, a lack of integrity in something else, somebody else, if it really upsets us, there's something going on inside that's triggering us that we're not fully living in, in our integrity. So um, I hope that's helpful. It's good to see you here, Jess. Thanks. Rachel Howard, how do you create a culture of engagement in a distributed organization? We are a consulting firm where the consultants work at our clients and the operations staff works from home. I'm just going to take a breath here. That personal one just got me worked up a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to have to repeat this question. Just taking a breath. You know, I think I'm going to actually... I'm going to do this as a two-parter because we're, we're hitting 40 minutes. So I'm just going to end it at this. Um, uh, my apologies, Rachel. We will get to this soon. But I think at 40 minutes, I'm a little toast. You're a little toast. Let's leave it at that. Let's leave it and on, on the awkwardness, on the awkward note of me just halfway reading a question when I get tired and <laughs> say we're ending the podcast. So living the culture of awkwardness right now. I hope you found this helpful. If you found it helpful or not, I hope you'll just tell me. Um, whether it be a comment on the page or Robert at CultureBlueprint.com because um, it's just me in a room by myself right here. I'm just wondering how helpful or useful this is. Um, thanks for being with us here, and we'll see you on the next episode of Culture Hackers.